Welcome to episode 14 of Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball and international affairs. This is our first episode of the Trump administration, words I'm still growing accustomed to learning how to say. We recorded this not only on Inauguration Day, but kind of the middle of the day on the Inauguration Day. We didn't have the television on, we weren't looking at it, but there is pathos in our voice, and also a little joy that we were able to spend some time not thinking about Donald Trump, although we do talk about him a bit here, thinking and talking about baseball with each other. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. If you need to reach me, there's a couple ways you can do that. My website is www.lincolnmitchell.com, and if you go there, you can read a lot of my writings, you can get back episodes of the podcast. You can contact me by email if you want to talk about the podcast, about being a guest, ideas for guests, suggestions, or uh, ideas for book events if you're interested in having me talk about any of my new books. And I'm emailable at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My Twitter handle is at lincolnmitchell. A couple of upcoming events I want to let you know about. On Friday, January 27th, I will be at the San Francisco Baseball Academy. That's right where the old bridge theater in San Francisco used to be. It's Geary around Blake Street on the north side of the street. That's going to be 7 p.m. on the 27th. And I will be talking about my book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. And if you're really lucky, uh, we'll go out to dinner afterwards because there's some great restaurants in that neighborhood. On January 28th, that is Sabre Day. That is the Society for American Baseball Research. There will be events all over the United States. And I will be speaking to the Lefty O'Doul chapter. We have a great program there. That's going to be in San Leandro, California. That's the Bay Area chapter. And if you'd like to go to that event or learn more about that, either contact me through my email or go to the Sabre website. Sabre is S-A-B-R. I have a couple of recent other articles I want to let you know about. My new Georgia analysis is available on my site. And the this this issue is really about what happens to the United National Movement after the party is kind of split apart, but also how Saakashvili will try to play the new Trump administration to maybe become relevant again in Georgian politics. I also have a Huffington Post piece that is my most recent one that looks at all the dimensions of the Russia-Trump morass and tries to kind of parse what is important about that and what is not. Again, if you want to get the, the podcast, you can go to my site, and maybe you found it already if you're here, but you can also find it on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you do go to iTunes or Stitcher, please rate and review us, all that stuff really helps. I have two guests today, and I've been trying to schedule these guests for a while, and then I think I got lucky, and I got them at a very good time, because this is Inauguration Day, but it's also the Hall of Fame vote, and my guests have some expertise on both those areas. My baseball guest is John Pessa. John is a 43-year veteran of newspapers, magazine, and books focusing on sports, with special emphasis on the business side of sports. He's also a lifelong Yankee fan. He was founding editor of ESPN the magazine and spent 20 years in the newspaper business. He was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his work supervising a team project on the plight of black players in Major League Baseball. He was a sports editor at the Hartford Current before he came back to Long Island, where he was from, and became the assistant managing editor and sports editor for Newsday. He also ran the investigative team for ESPN the magazine and produced an award-winning Book, a look at the rise of steroids in baseball titled Who Knew? His first book is called The Game, The Inside Secret World of Major, League's baseball, Major League Baseball's Powers. And I read this book when it first came out and thought it was great. And that's one of the, that's the main reason I wanted John on the show. Um, it's a great look at the 90s and, and aughts period, looking at uh, PEDs, looking at the labor issues, the kind of behind the scenes in the commissioner's office. And even if you are so young that you don't remember that, it's a very good overview of the history of that time, but even if you are old enough that you do remember that, it's really a great, 
you learn things you didn't know, even if you were paying a lot of attention at the time. And it's told in a very fast and easy way. So I highly recommend it. His next book is due out in the spring of 2018, so a year and change from now, I don't know, 15 months from now or something. And it is a biography of the great Yogi Berra, who was not only an American icon, but a fantastic baseball player. And if you want to get more of John, follow him on Twitter at John Pesa. Let me spell that for you. J-O-N-P-E-S-S-A-H. My international affairs guest today is Craig Charney. Craig is an international pollster and political scientist. He has worked for everyone from Nelson Mandela and Bill Clinton to the World Bank and USAID. He's worked on political campaigns, democracy promotion, and other projects in more than 45 countries over the last quarter century. He has a PhD from Yale and a master's degree from Oxford. Those are both in political science and a diploma from the Sorbonne in the sociology department. Craig's firm will soon be releasing a 10-country survey report on the future of money, including mobile money and Bitcoin. And if you're interested in that report, keep an eye on his website, www.charneyresearch.com, and you can get other information, other reports that they do. As I was, as Craig and I were, as we were preparing to set up for here, we, we recorded in Craig's office, we were chatting, and Craig and I, I've always known that Craig's a baseball fan, we've talked baseball and, you know, gone to ball games together, and I always knew that he was a Mets fan. I did not, or I had forgotten, I should say, that he is an original Mets fan going back to 1962. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with me and Craig and John. Craig and John, welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Yes, thank you for having us. So we are having, just so our listeners know, we are very fortunate to be having this conversation during the inauguration. So we're not watching that. We're not, we're not watching the, the actual beginning of the end of American democracy. But we're talking about baseball and we're talking about international affairs. We're talking a little about American politics. So, Craig, based on your work, all over the world. How do you think this ends for Trump? How do you think this ends for the United States? Does it end? Where, where are we going? I think the end is messy, but it takes a while. You know, I've been taking a look at how demagogues fall. I'm planning on writing something on this. And the first thing that I've noticed is it takes a while. Oftentimes they get a uh, boost from whatever they do that solve the initial problem that helped get them into office but eventually get tangled up in some mix of scandal, litigation, um, impeachment, public resistance or public opposition or electoral defeat. And these things come together. And either they're forced out of office or there's street action or they become so scandal-ridden that they just can't hold on. I'd expect that to happen with Trump, but when? Well. Probably not in less than four years. Maybe it'll simply be that he staggers out of office after eight. Or maybe he doesn't quite make it that far. Well, I certainly hope you're right. I hope it's shorter. I agree it's not. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I think he's already getting credit for some short-term hits on the, on the jobs, which are not really what they are, but he is, and he'll continue to get that. And I expect that they will... Also, when the first round of things go bad, figure out a way to blame it on the Democrats, unless the Democrats get smarter, and so far I haven't seen any indication that, that, that they will. And, and Craig, you, you used some language there that I maybe want to highlight a little bit. You didn't talk about how we, the Democrats, have, you know, or how the Democrats win the next election, right? which is what you would be talking about on January 20th, 2000, right, when, when Bush was working, and if you were a Republican in 2008. Right. You used different language, and, and, and in fairness, I set you up by also using different language, but... Can you maybe speak to how you think the challenge ahead is not just, you know, how do we carry 270 electoral votes? It's a little more complex than that. There's more going on in the kind of regime development side of it. Yeah, I think there are several concerns. First is whether it even is possible to get to 270 votes. 
Um, with the overloading of the Electoral College um, and with various efforts at disfranchisement or voter suppression underway, um, it gets harder and harder for the Democrats. A 2% lead this time wasn't enough to win them the presidency. And these are likely only to continue with Republican majorities in both houses of Congress, the White House, the Supreme Court, um, the state houses, and soon the federal judiciary as well. The second factor is the kind of pressure on civil society, the civil service, and even businesses, major businesses contracting with the federal government that this government seems poised to bring. Whether it was the warnings to Boeing, whether it's been the tension with the press, whether it's been the near open warfare with the intelligence establishment, um, the sorts of things we usually think of as non-governmental safeguards also appear to be under threat. So how do these, how, what stops these institutions from collapsing entirely? Or, put another way, how do we rebuild them? Pushback, in a word. It requires pushback by elites and leadership. It requires trying to mobilize the public. One of the things that's happening that's important this weekend is the demonstrations across the country. Um, even if they don't have the most focused set of demands, they generate some energy. And as specific Trump policies start to come up, um, be they the suppression of people's health care, be they the elimination of educational or other programs that benefit people, um, fighting back to try to stop or mitigate them is very important. Do you... Um, this, so we're going to have this we're going to have this very unusual inauguration weekend. We already are in the middle of it, right? I mean, you know, there's protests all... I mean, there's always... Were, I mean, I believe that when Bush came in, there were scattered protests. Certainly, I'm from the Bay Area out there, you know, and, and the Tea Party began shortly after. Obama wasn't in office all that long, though that was a different kind of a thing. It seems to me that, that a part of important... And stop me if I'm wrong, but I also want to hear your thoughts on this. You know... There's a sustained side of this, a side of sustaining this that, that is important. When I look around the world in places where I've been involved, I've seen that these, you know, it's not the one, it's not like if you get X plus one person, the president says, you win, I'm done, right? Yeah. It's got to be, and it's also, and I'm wondering, in America, though, we have a different, um, you know, the, the, what we're going to see after this weekend is we're going to see one chunk of the media in our kind of ego-casting era saying, wasn't this the greatest administration, uh, greatest inauguration ever? Some Bruce Springsteen cover band who none of us have heard of played a really great version of, you know, Born to Run or something, right? And then, there, and then there's going to be another chunk of the media, and, and, by, and those weird-looking hippies protested, right? right? And the other side, you say, massive protest, unprecedented in American history, greeted the new presidency. Um, and, and there'll be some truth in both, although a lot of people who are going to these protests are not There's no overlap in either. Right, and people not reading both. Yeah. Right, which is what's happened. We've become completely untethered. There used to be an overlap. That's where we governed. Yeah. There is no overlap. And to me, this is, not surprisingly, being in the message business, this is a messaging problem. I think the Democrats are, are awful at messaging. Um, and really, and uh, quite frankly, the leadership is, is fractured. And it always has been. It was a really interesting article after Gore lost, um, uh, excuse me, after uh, Kerry lost in 2004, Bill Bradley wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And he said, okay, here's what the Republicans do. They built a, a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid are very rich people. At, and they then support the media. And that media goes out, and it's, it's conservative radio, it's television, it's think tanks, it's Ann Coulter and authors. And they do a consistent message, and it doesn't matter 
who's at the top of the pyramid because that message is always the same. And, it's, and you hit it, you hit it, you hit it, and that is the message that the Democrats don't have anything that approximates that, and the most um, powerful weapon in the history of the world is uh, communication. I mean, if you yep. control the merit, and that's what Trump is so great at, mm. is controlling the narrative. And, and roughly 20 years ago, to go to what you were saying, Hillary Clinton, who was then first lady of the United States, was ridiculed for referring to a vast right-wing conspiracy, when, of course, what was happening was there was a vast right-wing right. conspiracy, and that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, what I'm, what I'm, so, but, but there's, there's another side to it, too, which is that, that we really, we're all living in echo chambers, right? Real and virtual, right. both in terms of where we, who we follow on Twitter and where we get our news, but also who we talk to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm wondering is, when I look at countries like, for example, you know, the countries of the color revolutions in, in, in uh, Eastern Europe, even from the Arab Spring countries, a consensus emerged. And, but the, in many cases, those countries, Ukraine would be an exception, were not divided the way we were going in. And I'm wondering if you see that as raising any specific challenges for us in the United States. I am struck by this. Um, you know, and I've worked in countries like Lebanon, which are deeply divided. The polling um, looks like a two-hump camel. <laughs> you see mm-hmm. one hump representing one side of the divide and the other hump representing the other. And increasingly, that's what America looks like. Here's the other thing that surprised me, though, in Lebanon. That was true, really, if you were talking about partisan and ethnic orientation. If you ask people what they actually wanted on the issues, it was remarkably similar. And in fact, just for fun, we put up an imaginary candidate um, who actually responded to people's concerns on the issues, and people from both sides wanted to vote for them. Maybe that was Donald Trump in this election. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No. Um, no, I think that one of the interesting questions is whether or not we continue to polarize in these ways, or whether we find people who are able to bridge those divides. If we look, after all, the last two successful Democratic candidates, what do we find? A white Southerner who was able to talk to people in a way they would understand, but about liberal policies, or a Midwestern black man who was able to reach both uh, minority constituencies and, interestingly, Midwestern white voters, um, and make them feel that he was speaking to their concerns. Although different electors, right? Only at the beginning. Only mm-hmm. and, and, and Obama's base was always, I think, I mean, I don't have the polling numbers at hand, but I think one thing that always, Obama, I think Obama won in 2008 in the primary because he recognized that the white working class is a myth for the Democrats, working class is a myth for the Democrats. And he, his, his base was African-Americans, of course, and white, what we would call educated. white liberal, liberal kind of educated elite types. Right? Although he did remarkably well among white men in general, interesting enough. White women voted for Hillary in 2008. I looked at this quite closely at the time. Right. Yes. yes. But what about the general? Yeah. In the, in the general election also, he had significant appeal to white workers, which is why he carried Indiana for the first time in a right. very long time, as well as the rest of the upper Midwest. And, and he did well in lower-income white voters, I believe, in some of the more, like Wyoming, Montana kind of states, yes. which were really uncharted. What's striking this year, in fact, is that you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio. and Ohio flipped because many of those white working class counties flipped. But there was also, I mean, there's a wild card in the last election, which was John McCain looked like a deer in the headlights. And once the economy, once the economy tanked. Right, yes. And Obama was cool and calm and said, let's roll up our sleeves. And he gave people confidence yeah. that he could do it. And McCain scared the hell out of everybody because you knew he couldn't do it, which is a very different. Now we have a, people, a group of people who feel that they've been left behind. Yes. And Obama never talked to those people. He said, look how great things are. And for half the country, things were great. Half the country, not so great. He did not talk to us. I saw a study yesterday by a group down in, in uh, Washington where the people who the economy uh, did well for, overwhelmingly, 
Hillary, yeah. the people who the economy did terrible for, and those tended to be 100,000 below communities. If you control by race. All went. If you control for race. If yeah. you control for race, correct. Right. Right. All went for uh, uh, Trump. But, but the Democratic, I mean, this is important. The Democratic Party has not been the party of lower-income white voters, really, since Johnson, right? They've always scattered to more conservative alternatives. Now, so what we're talking about is the margins here. But, of course, presidential elections are won and lost in the margins, right? And, and so because... You know, what we're really talking about is 5,000 white voters in each of these states flip and 10,000 more African-Americans right. come out in those three key states, throw Florida in slightly higher numbers, and you have, and you have Hillary in almost the landslide, right? right. So it's, it's a little, not landslide, but it was a real big And 90 million people didn't vote, and that's a wild card also right. that we don't know how that's going to affect the yeah. elections going forward. So I wonder, speaking of elections, I want to talk about a different election um, that just occurred. Uh, thank you. Um, and, and so we just had the Hall of Fame voting, and... and uh, I'm, stop me if you disagree, but as I can see, so three guys got in, Von Rodriguez, Jeff Bagwell, and, and Tim Raines. I don't think there's a false positive there. I think all those guys are deserving of being in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I don't vote in the Hall of Fame. I don't, I don't know if you do. Um, Mr. Bayer. But I, uh, I would have voted for some more guys uh, mm -hmm. if, if I'd had a ballot. And, and two, of the more, two of the guys that, that come to mind are Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens. Um, and, and I think Bonds, in my view, Bonds is the best player I ever saw. Clemens mm -hmm. may not have been the best pitcher, but on the very short list of people right. who were the best pitcher I ever saw. I was always a Greg Maddox guy. I just loved it. But, um, and, of course, Bud Selig is getting in, right, right. Who, who is the commissioner. So my question is, how does Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame get out of this mess? This seems going to be take the time. The, the people who voted for Rodriguez, who was um, every bit as suspected of steroids as Piazza. As Piazza in um, um, Canseco's book, he said he personally injected Rodriguez, and it turned out that, ironically enough, that uh, Canseco was one of the people who told the most truth yes. about that era Amazing as anybody way. in baseball. Yes. yes. Um, so, uh, but the people that voted for, uh, for Rodriguez were the people who have only been in for the last 10, 11, 12 years, so they don't care. It's the people who've been in 30, 20 and 30 years that care, and those are my brethren. And I think a good chunk of that, quite frankly, is they were embarrassed. So do you think Bond's real sin is not having used the steroids, but rather having fessed up to it? No, he never fessed up to it. Oh, that's right. Um, but, no, I think Bonds' great sin is that he came eligible mm -hmm. in an era where most of the people missed the story. Mm -hmm. um, he also, as, as uh, I mean, he's the angry black man. I think that's a big part and of it. And that's a big part of it. If he, if he, and that was a big part of Jim Rice. And it was a big part of a few other people. Well, for the record, big Poppy will not have that no. problem. He'll go right in, even though he tested positive. In you know, for some form of steroids for, in in the two thousand three drug testing, which was supposed to be confidential. For, for the record, because we're describing yeah. Barry Bonds and Angry Black Man, I met him when he was in high school, <laughs> and he could not have been nicer. Yeah. And so I well, mean, Barry can be very nice. Barry can be charming. Barry can be the biggest jerk you've ever met in your life. Um, and he looked. It's a you know, in large part, this is a popularity contest. Yes. And he was not very popular, nor was Clemens very popular. But I wonder whether we could stay on Barry Bonds for a second. Sure. Because I find him a fascinating player. And I wonder whether there's another thing he did. I don't want to say the word sin, because that's not, you know, but, but I mean, did wrong or that went wrong for him, which is this. We know, what we, the, the, what's striking to me about Barry Bonds is we know pretty much for sure that he did not take steroids through 1998, right? So that's probably true. So if we take 98 and put a, a normal career decline he's, already he's a Hall of Fame. He's already right. right. And, and not only a Hall of Fame, but an inner circle first ballot 
Hall of Famer, and also, like Willie Mays, who we were chatting about a little earlier, one of these very graceful, beautiful players to watch. And Barry Bonds, the younger Barry Bonds, you know. What happened with Barry Bonds in the 99 through 07 period of his career, when, when when the steroid use was suspected, is he became a very different player and a cartoonishly good player. Mm-hmm. And if steroids got you, and I don't want to pick on someone else necessarily, but got you for being pretty good to Manny Ramirez's steroid era, mm-hmm. or David Ortiz perhaps steroid era, that's one thing. But if it got you from being pretty much the best in the game to somebody who kind of made a mockery of Babe Ruth, I'm exaggerating, that, that's the thing that also irritates the media because mm-hmm. it's, it destroys other shibboleths. Right. Well, Barry Bonds was that much. I mean, the, the, if you track it, it would track the same. I mean, a lot of people were taking steroids. There was a, I did a lot of work in this area for a book that I wrote called The Game. Yeah. And uh, the best description of I mean, it was clear from talking to everybody that everybody knew what was going on. It was impossible not to, including the fans. Come on. We, we know, know baseball fans know records. And when you see what, there were 17 people hit 40 home runs, and 40 home runs in most year in baseballs would have won you the home run title, and nothing clicked in our head going, whoa, this doesn't add up. And, and people who were 35 were suddenly 25. Um, that, you know, I'm doing a book on Yogi Berra, and by 34, he was done as a dominant player. And now we have people at 34 who were dominating the game. Um, it was obvious to everybody that, that, that this was going on. And so I think that that separation that Bonds had with everybody, it just tracks. And to get back to what someone told me about just how obvious and why people knew was he said, look, John, anyone who walked into a major league clubhouse um, saw the poison coming out of their bodies, which is the acne fields on your back when you cycle on and off of steroids. Two weeks on, two weeks off, and people have incredible acne from their waistline to the top of their back, which I saw and, and naively in 1995 a Hall of Famer, a guy who's now in the Hall of Fame, I went to my wife as a pharmacist and said, wow, you think a millionaire would be able to go to a dermatologist to take care of something that serious? And that's what they saw. And they all saw it. They all saw the little black bags that suddenly everybody carried. Now, so I wonder, though, we have evidence, pretty strong evidence that a lot of people took steroids, right? Right. I mean, I, I always say, you know, Barry Bonds and A-Rod probably... And, hit more home runs off pitchers on steroids than anyone in baseball well, history. That, well, like and Roger Clemens right. probably strike out more guys than who are on steroids. But, right. but I, I wonder, it seems to me that if we look at the home runs and the offensive explosion, right, uh, during this period, there are other potential causes as well, right? Teams, the Giants move from Candlestick Park to Pac Bell, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of teams are making that move. There is an awareness that comes with this of the kind of movement for patience of power from the put the ball in play uh, approach that dominated for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering whether there are other, I mean, how much of, of that offense do you, and this is a little bit off topic, do you attribute to steroid use? Um, let me see if I interpret your question correctly. Uh, I think the public demand for, for uh, home runs was off the charts, and I remember sitting with my kids watching the Mark McGuire uh, home run derby in 1999, hitting the ball over the fence at Fenway, and it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, and people just fell in love with that, and the people running the game understood that quite well. And so well, there's nothing as exciting as a home run, especially if you're in the stands. Yeah, especially if you're in the stands. And, and the stands were packed. I mean, the, the attendance during this era, smaller ballparks, no question. Um, maybe a livelier ball, uh, certainly better conditioning. Um, uh, in part, because, in body part because of steroids. Body armor? Body armor, right. A clear uh, message, don't pitch inside. Right. 
I mean, uh, you know, you sit with Bob Gibson and he watches this. He said, that guy would have hit a home run off for me. He would have been on his ass. But that's the next, the I, next I was just going to go to Bob Gibson because, or Don Drysdale or someone like yeah. that, one of these guys of that era. But they couldn't do that. But, they wouldn't, but do they know they wouldn't be allowed to do that? Yes. Like, did they, oh, they, they, they know the rules know. have changed. They don't think like no, these guys aren't tough anymore. Right. No, the rules have changed. And I mean, there's some resentment and there's some, I mean, there's a real, uh, this book I'm doing on Barra, you know, the era goes from the 40s through the 60s. And the macho um, uh, mindset, um, uh, Ralph Terry, who uh, went from a dirty word to my family, because I, I came of age watching Bill Mazrowski oh, hit the home run in 1960 to beat the Yankees. And, um, and Ralph Terry served that pitch up. And I met him, and he's the nicest guy. And he... He also pitched a fantastic game, 762. Which he never got credit for because of William McCovey, but we'll come back to that. But he pitched 189 innings one year, and the next year he pitched 298 innings. And he was so proud of that and so proud of finishing a game, it was unmanly not to finish a game. And now you have five inning pitchers. I mean, one Marshall, right? If you, if you, um, I'm I'm doing, I'm trying to do another baseball book about about the Giants and Dodgers after, basically after they've moved past. I'm writing it by now. Mm -hmm. And if you go to San Francisco to the ballpark we were just talking about, you should, you know, we're out there, we'll we'll go. Um, And and there's a statue of Marshall, right? Because he's beloved. The Lake Hill. The The Lake Hill, which is just amazing. And then it has his stats there. Yeah, which and are it, and, amazing. And I, I remember the first time I went there, I was with a friend of mine, and, and he was a big, huge, crazy Giants fan. This guy who slept on the stairs of Cooperstown to see Willie McCovey get inaugurated. So we're talking huge Giants fan. And he took my kids, who were quite young, to see the statue. And they're both pitchers now. One of them's pitching in college next year, the other's in high school. And he says, I want you to look at the numbers there. And he pointed out that he had more complete games than wins. Yeah. Marshall. And that was also something that Marshall was very proud of, if you read his memoir. And they were, and they were proud of it. It yeah. wasn't just like they didn't feel like they were getting abused, which today's pitchers do. Yeah. Um, like Chapman, who complained that the that the Cubs, who knew they weren't going to sign him, um, were overused him, which Actually, they did. Quick question about Chapman. Sure. I mean, I, I, this is this is this is an interesting question. So, Dusty Baker, right, uh, the manager of the Nationals, right. I'm going to say this nicely. Isn't a big, isn't in my view a great postseason tactician. I think that that's a right. But he's a wonderfully decent guy. Right. You know, this is a guy who, when Glenn Which Jordan... counts a lot over the long season. It should count best. a lot. It should count it a does. lot. It does. That's why Dusty keeps getting work, right? Right. But when, when Glenn Burke was dying of AIDS, Glenn Burke was the first out gay baseball Dusty Baker was a few teammates who visited him. Mm-hmm. Right? Glenn Burke writes about this in his memoir. Incredibly right? decent men. That's, again, why he gets hard. He wrote a book about the Monterey Pops Festival, right? I mean, going there as like... And he's still... And now he's from Sacramento, and he talks about when he's got... When he has... Uh, Young ball players on his team, which of course he always does. He says, "So, give me some. Like, what, what music should I put on my my? Uh, what do you call it? He wants my part because he wants to be cool, know what the players are listening to, really relate to. This is a decent guy. He also was mentored by Henry Aaron, which is why he then mentored Clint Burke, because Aaron kind of thought this was important. Right. But Joe Madden wears thick glasses, right, mm-hmm. and has some silly white guy ideas. And I'm wondering, and I think in that World Series, he blew it in Game Seven, and frankly in Game Six as well. And I'm wondering how much of the narrative about Madden saves him in that case. And the fact, of course, they snuck out of one. I mean, obviously, if the Giants win, you know, two, things are different also. But do you ever think about that? Well, Madden... It's a little off topic. I mean, a a lot of... It's interesting. People's reputations um, get developed, and then they become mythic in baseball. And Joe Madden is an ultra-respected guy. And um, so um, if he makes... People think he's a genius. So if he makes mistakes... Well, you know, geniuses are supposed to take risks. Right. And he took a risk and it didn't work out, but wow, 
how smart was it to take that risk? That's the narrative that gets built around Joe Madden. Joe Madden's also, and this is very important, this is something I talk to athletes about all the time. Joe Madden is unbelievable with the prize. And, and that's why they write about him like that. And he has one-third as many rings as Bruce Bochy. Yeah. Right? yeah. Who, doesn't, who doesn't make mistakes in the postseason. Right. And, and also doesn't cultivate the press. Right. Or he cultivates local press. I, I was reading, um, doing some research yesterday, Casey Stengel, such a central figure in the Yogi Better sure. Story. And Yogi refers to writers as my writers. Yogi or Casey? Uh, I'm sorry, Casey. Always um, considered them my writers. In fact, he paid more attention to his writers than he did to his players. And he sent messages to his players through the writers. And, uh, you know, of course, he had the, the great advantage of having Joe DiMaggio on the team, even though he didn't like him all that much, but on the team um, for a couple of years. Yeah, and all DiMaggio had to do was look at you wrong, and you didn't do that again. What a change in our culture that, I mean, I don't think that there's anybody who has that sort of gravitas that if you look at him wrong, You'll never do that again. Haven't both relationships changed, though? Both the relationships between the press and players, and also even that of players as kind of moral figures towards each other? Definitely press and players. I mean, I had a guy who worked for me um, in the, who covered baseball in the 60s. And he told me um, that after, at the end of the season, the players would cozy up to him. Um, because, and, and, and so they'd, they'd write good stories. He'd write good stories about them because they needed to get a job in the offseason. And so there was the, the, the press played cards with them, the press traveled with them, they were on the same trains. They were making roughly the same amount of money. And they were making roughly about the same amount of money, with very few exceptions. Um, and uh, so they, they really, there was, a, and there was also, there was a lot of things that the press didn't write about. Yeah. And uh, so they were, they were part of the team. Um, and, and now, uh, you know, both because of the, of the explosion in, in the amount of media, and as I watch as a newspaper person, my job being chopped away, I used to be able to bring you quotes. Now you can turn on cable. Right. So that's so If I give you, right, if I don't give you, if I, that's not special. I have to bring something special that, that so that changes the relationship, and the special thing is criticism. And, and criticism not just of what you do on the field, but what you do off the field. And so the relationship, and of course, players became, um, you know, starting in the mid-70s, started to become economically superior to the point now where they are in the stratosphere versus people who are trying, in a large part, by their fingernails, to hold on to their jobs. So the, the, the power... In a shrinking uh, industry. Yeah, well, not, not, it's not a shrinking industry, it's a shattered industry. There's more people now doing media. If I was, when I broke in in 1974, I had to have experience to get a job. But I didn't, I didn't have a job, so I couldn't get experience. So how do you break that cycle? And it took a, lo a lot of work to work yourself up from the bottom. Now there's the barrier to entry is, is non-existent. You can write a blog, and if you've got great ideas, it's going to go viral, and you're going to become a star. And, but um, you know, the, the, the what has changed so much is what we write about, how quickly we write. Um, just get it. I have people. I've had people wanting me to write from websites to say, just file the story. If it's wrong, we'll fix it. And that's the that's the mindset now. It's like I I, I don't do that. Right. So um, there's been, I mean, in many respects, that parallels the change in the relationship between press and politics. As well. it, oh, absolutely. It tracks perfectly. It's it's. I'd really like to do a study of the, of what disruption on, of the media because that's what's going on now, and how it translates to to government. And society, because we are, uh, you know, and, and it's happening so fast. 
me and, you know, every, all the kids, all my kids, excuse me, I'm a baby boomer, so all my kids in their generation got off Facebook when my generation decided, hey, this is cool, we can talk to each other and find high school people right. to connect yeah. to. And so now we dominate Facebook and they're on Snapchat. And Instagram. And, and, and Instagram, right. And, um, and if we take the energy to get on that, which I don't think we will in mass, in part because, uh, you know, telling a story in 45 seconds and have it disappear in a, in a day is just not very rewarding to us. Right. It's also when you're, you know, you're, your hormones are in a different place and you're 17 years old, it may serve a different role. Than uh, it or does 30 years old. I mean, my, guy, kids, right? my kids are 33 and 29 and Snapchat is where they talk. And they don't talk on Facebook. <laughs> you're right about that. And Craig, you could, you're talking about politicians and I want to get back to you with another, but I want to just follow up on that I remember early on in this in this dreadful election that we just had, I said, you know, one of the major advantages Donald Trump has is that he does his own Twitter account, right? right. If I don't know if you had the extraordinary uh, mazel to, to follow all of the presidential candidates on Twitter throughout this presidential campaign, but I did because I started out covering this uh, for the Observer before I quit, so it was part of my right. basically my job. And every one of them would tweet things that sounded like they were focus groups. So three times a day from Bernie Sanders, you know, progressive guy, you would right. get. It is a shame that in the wealthiest country in the world, people don't have access to good health care, which is true. I mean, objectively, right? Or for Ted Cruz, you would get things like, in, you know, in November of 16, we're going to restore conservative principles to governance in the United States, which is, if you're Ted Cruz's voters, that's, you would what agree you with that, what's one a year. Right. It sounds like a robot wrote it, right? <laughs> it's not, people, it, people don't even, that, that just goes right, you, you don't even stop your eyes on it, right? Okay. Whereas Trump was saying crazy stuff, and a lot of the, opinion, kind of people who were judging that were saying, this is too crazy. But in fact, what he was doing was breaking through. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to tell us whether he's crazy or crazy like a fox. Or both. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the guy was on a top-rated television show, so he knew what to say. He'd already done it. Um, I abhor this man, abhor this man, and my wife watched his show, and I walked out of the room. I said, you are supporting a crazy person, and that's dangerous. And, um, you know, he had he'd been talking about time with the presidency since the 80s. Yeah. This is, you know, and, and, and I've talked, and I know you know, people, I mean, he was a great friend of George Steinbrenner. Um, and they're not dissimilar personalities. They are not at all. No, they see the zero-sum game. It's you win, you lose. If you with win, everything that you've done is right because you've won. That is the way they think. That's the way George thinks. That's the way a large group of those people think. And that's, that's tough because in your heart you go, no, they don't really believe that. Yes, they do. Yeah. And, you know, when uh, I came here from a uh, secondary market, uh, I was at the Hartford Current, I came to Newsday. And my brother, who worked at Citibank for vice president for many, many years, and a you know, veteran of the wars, all the people that went through uh, Citibank told me, well, when you walk in the door, uh, understand that someone is going to that there are everyone there will stab you in the back if they get the chance to get what you have. Um, I was an assistant managing editor at, at, at one of the top people at Newsday, and I said that's not true. Yes, it is, and that's there's a lot of people in this town that work that way, and this is the center of the universe of finance and media and, and baseball and baseball. If you're right. a Yankee fan, right. the curious thing about Trump, of course, is that 20 years ago he seemed to be in on the joke. And he seemed, people liked him because he seemed actually not to take himself all that seriously. Um, that changed somewhere along the way. Some people think it was Obama's diss of him at the uh, White House correspondence dinner that actually... I'm convinced that he actually expected 
and wanted to win this. I'm convinced no. he did not. On the right. contrary, he himself has said point blank that he expected to end up in the middle of the Republican pack. Right. And likewise, like everyone else, I think most of his people did not think he was going to win, at least perhaps until the last few days, when they were very skillfully monitoring the key states in a way that the Democrats were not. Actually, weirdly enough, I talked to someone yesterday who was on the 5 o'clock exit poll call for the Republican, for the Trump campaign, and they were told they lost. Yeah. Which and they did on the national uh, vote. Right. Um, and most of those exit polls are generally national results, not generally not right. breaking down state right. results. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that is... Um, impressive about all this is that he, he powered through. But no, part of it is he himself didn't expect to be here. Why is he underprepared? Because he never expected to be there. Right. And I don't know that he wanted to be there. I mean, the story about him, about um, Kasich, I mean, not Kasich, um, yes, it was Kasich, but Pence sitting down with Kasich, no, Jared Kushner sitting down with Kasich and saying, you're going to run the domestic and right. foreign policy. Right. basically, you'd be the president. Be the president, and, and which is what Kasich said. He said, what is Donald going to do? And, and Donald's going to make America great again. I look at Mike Pence, and this is a serious, I mean, I don't like his policies. I don't personally like him. I mean, some of his policies make me not like him personally. I try to separate that. But this is a person who's acting presidential. This is a person who is, is being serious about governing, whether, he, whether it's just a facade or he's actually the guy who's making a lot of these decisions after he runs it by the big guy. If, if Pence had been elected on his own, he'd be the, he would make Reagan look like Bernie Sanders. But... Absolutely. He would still be kind, like, he would still be functioning. He, would, he wouldn't be setting out to weaken democratic institutions from, from before he got in office. You know, any more than the kind of, the way they do around the, mar the way all presidents do around the margins, right. you know, but this is different. This is really, to me, something. Well, I, don't you think it's also part Paul Ryan and part Mitch McConnell and, and their two relative institutions? I think, I think that the failure of, when people, and I, you know, I've had foreign guests on the show who said the American institutions are strong. The American institutions were strong. We'd already have robust investigations of Trump's conflicts of interest and of Russia. Right. And the fact that we don't, in my view, means that we now have a Congress, a Republican-led Congress, that is complicit in this. So that when no progressives say that it's, you know, we'll, we'll be impeached, he will not be impeached unless... He kills someone. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that would do it. But um, <laughs> unless the Democrats magically win back the House... In, as Craig began the show, a, a kind of structure that, that could well, very well be less democratic, you know, with more barriers to voting, which will make it hard for, harder for Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I think that the question of the role Pence will play, or the vice president will play, is also part of the evolution of the role. We've seen increasingly the prime ministerialization yes. right. of the vice president. Right. Um, that was Cheney. Yes. Cheney, right. no, but not just Gore and Biden yeah. in their own yeah. ways had charge of particular areas of policy that are not as extensively as Cheney. But they seem like more like partners, almost deputy presidents, rather than the warm bucket of, shall we say, spit because we're in a family pocket. But that is still a long ways from saying that, from the days when people said that, you know, there were two brothers, one went out to see the other became vice president, and neither was ever heard right, from right, again. Right, right, right. Right. Or the exactly. war what John Nance Garner has right. a warm bucket of spit. Well, right. I, think, yeah. I think Gord was there, but Cheney completely, I mean, Cheney was... At least the prime minister. Well, it actually it actually began with Mondale under Carter. I mean, the person who woefully misused his vice president, unfortunately, was Jack Kennedy. Um, yes, because could have used what Johnson, Johnson could have brought to the Exactly, right. he could have right. been an incredibly valuable ally, but they, their personality issues were too great. You could have, but you could have imagined Johnson would have been an unbelievably effective prime ministerial vice In president. In that role. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's no um, question. But clearly, from Walter Mondale on, I would say, 
um, perhaps even from Nelson Rockefeller on, given his importance under Gerald Ford, we have seen the vice president assuming that role. More under Republicans, it's true. Well, I don't know about it, because I don't think Quayle did. True. Well, yes, but I don't think he could either. Well, yeah, that's, true. that's probably true. But right. I think Cheney and Pence are very good examples. And Bush, yes. you know, had some expertise that really complimented that's Reagan. That's absolutely yeah. right. Oh, absolutely. Although, Reagan, although Reagan, you know, governor of California for eight years is not nothing. No, but I mean, Bush, Bush was very involved both in substantive policies and in messes like Iran Contra. <laughs> yes. Let right. me ask you messes like Iran Contra yeah, and right. Bushes. Let me ask it's you. People forget about. Let me ask you, Craig, a bit of a wild card question. But you know, if you were, if we were having this discussion on inauguration day, January two thousand one, right? Bush was coming in. We would have talked about a lot of things, right? What will his presidency be? What's John Ashcroft going to do at AG? You know, what's going to happen to abortion rights? All these things. We wouldn't talk about what's going to happen on September eleventh, two thousand one. Right, because we wouldn't have known that. I mean, yes. right. you know. So my question is that many, many presidencies, something happens out there in the world mm -hmm. that forces. You know, the Arab Spring took a lot of foreign policy energy in Obama's first term. That forces the president to focus on a foreign policy issue that often has impacts on domestic politics and policy. What might we be looking for with this president coming in in January of two thousand seventeen? What, what what is something that might just pop that maybe people should think about? It's easier to foresee international interstate crises than it is this sort of high-impact, low-probability event with a non-state actor that led to 9-11. There are a series of tense situations around the world. North Korea is one, um, with, yeah, with their um, rapid march towards nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles. The question of the South China Sea is a very tense one, given statements that Rex Tillerson made which would seem to imply a potential confrontation with China over its um, newly built reefs in the South China Sea. Um, you know, ISIS and Syria and Iraq, one doesn't quite know what happens there. But it's already there. Right? Yeah, but those all count as kind of known unknowns. I mean, it's the unknown unknowns that are really scary for this presidency, and they're unknown. That's why they're unknown. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, it, and it seems like... So an unknown unknown, whether it's that kind of interstate, non-state actor, or whether it's a conflict between two countries that we're not really, you know, Pakistan and India yeah. heats up or something like that over Kashmir or something like that. How do you see, I mean, this is a foreign policy team that is kind of, I mean, if you watch the Rex Tillerson hearings, on some opinions were those that you pick up at any right-wing cocktail party, right? I support BB 100% because right. I'm just hanging out in that crowd. Yeah. Right. And some were very different, like on Russia. It seems like this is pulled, even by the standards of modern American presidents, a lot of different directions on foreign policy. How would that play out when a crisis, you know, either known or unknown, unknown crisis comes about? There are two issues, policy and process. Um, there's clearly a diversity of views in the administration with people in the departments that deal with foreign policy, state, um, the Defense Department, and the UN ambassadorship actually hewing towards a more moderate and centrist line than the White House, either in terms of Trump or in terms of his national security advisor. Already we see a lot of tension between um, defense and the NSC because of that. Now, the, what can moderate all this is process. Um, this is actually the biggest worry, both because much of the national security staff remains to be appointed. Um, they're very slow in these appointments, as well as people at the um, second, third, and fourth tiers of the departments, the assistant secretaries, the deputy assistant secretaries, who do much of the work of defense and state. Um, David Rothkopf, who knows more about this than anybody else, um, because he has literally written the book on the NSC, has talked about his concern 
an effective National Security Council, an effective interagency process can smooth over and generate a policy out of diverse views. So far, we don't see much evidence that's going to happen in this administration. In that sense, the process is an even bigger concern than the policy differences. And the wild card, I mean, you don't know what Trump's going to think from one hour to the next. Right, and so, that's... And, that's and, and I don't say that facetiously. Uh, I don't say that as a mock or a joke. I mean, it is, it is a fact, and you don't know. And, you know, you listen to confirmation hearings, and you hear them contradict him up and down the line. Now, you don't know whether they're saying that, because I mean, as, I, as I watched the John Roberts confirmation hearings... I had the same concerns that Barack Obama did, and I said, I don't believe a single word that's coming out of that man's mouth. And, of course, that was, that was a good call. Right. Um, yes. You know, so what these people are saying, I mean, these are people who are very good at telling you what you want to hear and then go and do something else, just like the guy who put him there. And, and the guy who put him there, I mean, if, you know, Reagan, for example, who was a very conservative president, you, know, you knew where Reagan stood. You knew always agree with him, but, you, you know, mm -hmm. Reagan's views on the Soviet Union... Didn't well, spring out of thin air in 1980, right? right? right. I mean, you knew where he stood. You know, with Obama, you knew where he stood in foreign policy. You know, the fact that Obama was less aggressive in using American military force shouldn't have surprised anybody. No. Many people may he not was have elected it. for that. That's why I ran. That exactly. <laughs> yes. but, but Trump yes. was elected with the principle of, I'm Trump. And that's, that seems to much, it's much more than Hillary. Hillary. And I'm not Hillary, which well, is much more than Hillary. And either you like me or you don't, and that's important here. There right. is more to the Trump presidency than that. I mean, he has a pretty clearly nationalist, nativist, protectionist set of core beliefs. Um, we think. Uh, well, no, it's been pretty consistent over but not the last Russia. couple of decades. I mean, that's, 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 right. that's, that's a big, big, The question of his relationship copy. with Russia is a big, a big one. But, but the point I was going to get at is that while he has that core, he has not displayed much interest in most other substantive policy issues or most of the details. And here the question is either whether he'll let them be handled by his people, which is quite possible, um, or whether he'll become a loose cannon on these kinds of things. And what Jared Kushner does. Yes. Well, I think Kushner will bring peace to the Middle East. I think we have to recognize he's a mm -hmm. smart guy. Mm -hmm. And I think he's Jewish, too. So I think we can assume that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Right. But, I, you know, I don't think there's any question that he wanted him there. Of course. And, and, and he's going to listen to him. Oh, I just want to say one thing yeah. about Jared Kushner, because I have to work for him. Yes. Right. Right. Um, which is this. There's a lot of things you can say critical of Jared Kushner, and I've said a lot of them. But the way he handled Chris Christie... That was beautiful. <laughs> like, that was out of a mob movie. That, that really was, he was. gets a lot of credit for that. I got to tell you, that's enough. I mean, uh, not to keep referencing this, but getting inside of New Jersey, and because Yogi moved to Montclair in 1959, and he's been a Jersey, I mean, he's really a Jersey guy. So I've met a lot of, of the, and he was, people, the, the, the rich and powerful loved being around Yogi um, his whole career, and, and especially at the end, but his whole career. And, um, Jersey politics, man. I mean, it is, it is something Talk else. Talk about the swamp. And, but Kushner yeah, kept him right. like, oh, no, it's over. Don't worry. And as soon as then, he just ruined Like, cut the legs out from under him yeah. 24 hours and after listen, the election. You know, he took down his father. He made his reputation on his father. He, uh, yeah. A lot of people felt Christie made his reputation on Kushner's father. On Kushner's yeah, father. Yes. And thought that, that he was, not only did he overdo it, but he made a giant show of it um, for his political benefit. And it's like, and Kushner clearly... Um, that that was his agenda. When right. it came to Chris Christie, that was the agenda. And he executed it. And he executed it. And he, I mean, that's... And you know, Chris he's not going to actually bring peace to the Middle East. I want to be clear on that. Right, and Chris <laughs> completely misread that, not understanding the relationship that... that Kushner and Trump. Kushner and Trump had. Because they're very similar characters. One of yes. the really strange things yes. about Kushner's more reserved. Yeah. 
Right. One of the really striking things about the people in this administration, though, is that they are skilled in the use of power and they are not hesitant about it. That's not just true for Kushner, but it's also true for people like Trump himself. For example, his warning shot at Boeing right after the head of Boeing had criticized him uh, right. and threatened cancellation of the Air Force One contract. Um, you know, they are not going to be shy about using power. If, in fact, they do end up being vindictive towards their enemies, this could well be one of the things that comes around to bite them in the end. Right. I think, actually, yeah. that, that's, and, and that's part of the mix. And it also is one of the things that will continue to put them in a position of pushing a, against uh, the conventions and mores and institutions that make democracy work, so to the extent that it does in the United States. Can I go back to something you, you asked Greg about the international? Uh, I mean, it was Katrina that took the, finally yeah. pulled the curtain back. For Bush. For, on Bush. And there's you know, every reason to believe that in the next four years that we're going to have a national crisis that the president's going to have to handle. And uh, he's not going to be able to handle it. And uh, Though remember, that came in President Bush's fifth year after he was Right, right. Well, but, and, and right. but we don't know what, what, what a massive hurricane like that is going to hit. True. But and, he is putting, and he is putting people who are equally... Uh, ill-prepared as Mike Brown yeah. was for the job. That no, he has. John, you're right. And in fact, we don't know whether it'll be a hurricane or something else. Mm -hmm. Yes, some there. In addition to the unknown unknowns about foreign affairs, there's the unknown unknown about domestic affairs. But right. it is likely that the president is going to be challenged to perform. I mean, and how many, and I mean, there are the known knowns, right? I mean, which is this: this is America, right? Sometime in the next four years, a white cop is going to shoot an African American young man or young woman or kid. Right in a way that is an excessive use of police force. We know that, right? We don't know what will happen after that, right? right? And so, so there are some of these known knowns that, that every, we know there will be an economic downturn at some point during the Trump presidency. You know, things we do know will happen. Right. I mean, there is, I mean, I mean correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't do the research, so I heard this, so I apologize for just repeating it, but I do know this part is true, that, you know, in the, the, when the, they have controlled all, you know, the, both sides of the House and the, um, excuse me, of Congress and the White House, and the, White House the pressure in a great recession. Um, you know, that's only, you know, the, uh, the deficit only matters when Democrats are president. Right. They, they are there to take as much money out as possible. That, was, that is their agenda, and they're not shy about it. I mean, it is No, to their credit, they're not. I mean, right. that's what I mean, I'm we're going to repeal, you know, we're going to give you a massive tax cut at the top, we're going to yeah. take away the, the state tax, we're going to roll back regulations so you can make more money, and, you know, if you can move a few things here to make it sound, seem like I'm doing what I promised, that would be great, but and I'll give you even more for it, because, by yeah. the way, I'll share in that. Yeah. In the short run, however, that's likely to help to produce a boom. Um, as to whether or not it peters out in more or less than four years, we'll have to see. Right. And whether you can target, I mean, Reagan, for example, put a lot of that spending on defense in some states in the Southwest, right? Yeah. That, you know, people forget that until 19, you know, for a while, Reagan, you know, Reagan, California was Reagan country, not the Bay Area where right. I was from. But, you know, so where do you, oh, yes, where do you stimulate the economy? Where do the, you know, can you get some, some more industrial jobs and in can you bring some work back? I mean, we'll, we'll see. Right. I, I want to go back to one baseball question, which is, because you're talking about Yogi Berra, you're writing a book on Yogi uh, Berra, who was a, a kind of, I remember at one point around the time, one of his last birthdays, you know, mm -hmm. I tweeted something out, happy birthday to Yogi Berra, you know, with a video of him. Okay. And a friend of mine who's English who follows me on Twitter responded back and said, I didn't realize this was a real person. Um, wow. And, and I said, no, he's a real person, but he was, actually was a great baseball player, right? He actually played baseball. He wasn't just some kind of guy who said silly things. He's a real person, a real baseball player. In my view, he, and I'm sure you'll talk about this in the book, which we'll read, I'll read when it comes out, he, Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, these are guys who are you know, great baseball players, but whose fame eclipsed that. People actually forget how good a baseball player Jackie Robinson was, just on the numbers, right? right. 
and how good he was on defense, regardless of what position you put him in. Um, but maybe for, for fans who are, who are a little younger, give us a sense of Yogi Berra as a player, and particularly because we've just seen another great catcher get into the Hall of Fame. Yogi Berra two- was, the, um, in the 50s, the, and this is saying a lot, considering who played in the 50s and how illustrious their careers were. We're talking about the Mazes and the Aarons. Yogi Berra was the, the most dominant player of the 50s. He won the MVP three times. He played the arguably the most important position on on the, on the field, um, a competitive spirit like none other. The the uh, led the team. I mean, it was the eclipse of the Maggio was not the Maggio after '49. That really no, was no. his last year. So '49, '50, '51, '52, '53, they won five straight World Series. Mickey Mantle was a 20-year-old rookie. In 1951. And really, this um, became great until the late 50s. Right. Really great. Mid, yeah, 56, 57. Six, Yogi Berra was the dominant player and drove that team. And, and they, he, they fixed him. He was indifferent growing up to defense. He just loved to hit, and he could hit. This is interesting because I'm a bit younger than you, and I simply remember Yogi Berra, the coach and the presidential sidekick, rather than right, the player. Right. Oh, he was just, I, you know, I, by the time I saw him, he was already. You know, 1960, so Yogi is 35, and 35 back then was 35. Right, he's playing outfield. And, right, he's playing the outfield. He's playing about 80, 90 games a year. Um, still a really good, cool player, but not a dominant player. Mickey and Will and, and right, Maris right. was a dominant player. So was Elson Howard. Yes. Was, was a dominant player. First and only uh, black player in the Yankees for a long time. I didn't realize how until I did this book. I did not realize how racist of an organization the Yankees were. That they they trotted it out. How racist they were. And do you understand something amazing, speaking of racist organizations? In, um, through 1958 and 1966, um, 13% of Latinos in baseball, right, who, play, who had one or more game in Major League Baseball, started the career with one team. Essentially, one team was scouting. Right. Is that right? Oh, yeah. No, they, they're... The Dodgers what? had, like... Who was that? The Giants. Do- the right. Giants. The Dodgers the Giants. had no Latinos. Right. I mean, the only fringe players. Well into, you know... Well, that's where, you know, they, they, the, the Dodgers got a jump on African-Americans. And on African-Americans. Um, the Giants got in and then hit the Latin American market. And, and they were first, and they go back to the Yogi first Barrett, there. Um, But Yogi, yeah, Yogi was, was an amazing player. And he was a, in, indifferent. He came up and he played more games in 1947. Played as many games in the outfield as he, as he caught. He was a terrible catcher. He says he was a terrible catcher. Um, he had a great arm. And he looked um, like a catcher. But he actually mm-hmm. hit an umpire in the chest. <laughs> and he hit, a, he hit another player in the head. I mean, he didn't know where the ball was going. Mm-hmm. And, and he, would, he didn't have a frame of pitch. He would stab at the ball and take it out of the strike zone exactly. instead of pull it in, which I'm sure the pitchers were thrilled about. Yes. And he would call a fastball when there were guys on, on, which isn't as bad as it would be today because back then you had a fastball, a curve, maybe a changeup. That was it. Right. You, know, you, didn't have, right, you didn't have you know, the right. five, six different pitchers that, that are, are out there now. Uh, Bill Dickey taught him how to catch. He was Bill Dickey learned him, every, learned him all his learned experiences. Learned his experiences, <laughs> right. Yogi Berra's had unbelievable footwork, was quick. He, he made uh, and was really quick up here when he came to the baseball. And he knew all the weaknesses of every hitter, categorized them. Um, he knew you know, when to set them up. He would start at the beginning, oh, you can have this pitch now. You know, I'm going to save the ones going to get you out in the seventh inning when the game's on the line. And let's face it, Yankees' offense usually kept the games competitive until the seventh inning. So he had that ace in the hole. I mean, he thought through the game. There's a great story about Mickey Mantle. 
in 19, I think it was like 56, 57, when males now, you know, I mean, he didn't win the triple crown. Front, the best and, right. player in the world. Yeah. And, and, but Yogi's still getting great headlines, okay? I mean, Yogi's still a dominant player, and it's like, what's so tough about being a catcher? So he said, fine, you call the game. So him and Whitey <laughs> and Yogi said, the okay, so center field so males in center field, and when he leans down, it's a curve. When he stands <laughs> like this with his arms folded, it's a fastball, and he called the game. So it's two to nothing in the seventh innings against the Red Sox. And, and they're winning or losing. And, and they're winning, and Ford's on the mound, and, and, and Mail just comes in going, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I said, you guys take it from here. I don't want the pressure of calling the wrong pitch after a walk, and then boom, there's a home run. It's tied 2-2. Casey's going to kill us, who, by the way, never knew. Casey sang the man, never knew this was going on. Um, so, you know, I think people forget how... A catcher is the only person on a baseball field who's like, he's like a quarterback in, in mm-hmm. he has to know when the ball is hit, where to be, what the player's going to do, all around the field. He's the only one on the field who has to know that, and he has to handle the most, the most emotionally high-strung person on the field, which is the pitcher, right. and how to motivate him, and, you know, do you, are you tough, are you, are you easy, joking, serious, um, and how to nurse him all the way through the game, um, as well as how to you know, handle the players. And one of the ways Yogi handled the players was he talked to them. Where are you going for dinner tonight? How was your vacation? How was the off-season? What's the wife doing today? Just constant, constant. So I want to ask you a question about Willie Mays because they never really, I guess, the, I guess Barron managed Mays at the very end of his career, right? Which was not pretty. But, but I want to... And because, he didn't want him. Because Mays as a player, yeah, I mean, Although he played, his numbers are okay with the Mets. Yeah, but he didn't want him on the team. He had, no. he had already done that in 64, with, right. you know, the aging veteran thing. And he right, didn't right. want to have, the, excuse me, the aging superstar thing. And he didn't want to have to do it again. But, but Mays also would, you know, look at a pitch for a strike in an early at-bat because he wanted to see it again in a late at-bat, yes. right? Which is, these are both right. very smart players. Right. And I wonder how they, they have unbelievable confidence that they were going to be able well, they to. Well, they actually Extremely, to extremely, yeah, well, the major Yogi Berra, you're more confident than you were me at the place, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's for sure. But I'm wondering, did he, did they ever, like, they, 51, the World they Series, they played against each other. They would have been a real game. 62, Berra wasn't catching much in the World Series. No, and he wasn't catching in the 61 either. He was playing, yeah. Right, but the Giants won the World Series in 61. That's right. what I'm So I'm wondering right, whether they ever got into that game where right. they were... Well, 51. Right, but I'm wondering, do we, do we know anything about that in um, your research? Not, to tell you the truth, not much. There is, an, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about the way media has evolved is that the coverage of the, of the games and the players back, in, back then and the coverage now is completely different. Yeah. I mean, back then you did not know a lot about the off-field. Uh, what was good. In fact, you almost knew nothing other than their contracts. Surprisingly, that was, uh, people were interested early on. Um, and they might say, you know, where they're working you know, um, because they all have work in the off season, and where they're showing up as a bank surgery. Yogi Berra so close in Newark. Um, he worked as a maitre d for two years at a famous restaurant um, in the neighborhood on the hill in, in St. Louis That's Italian close. restaurant. Um, so, uh, but they. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the thread. So let me ask you. So, so on, on the last day, as we are now in the end of the Trump, uh, uh, begin, there's a Oh, slip. can I finish that yeah, thought? Yeah, okay. Because I wanted to ask you another so the, question. The, um, but what they did do was they, um, they, they attacked um, Barra. Um, it was uh, about his looks, about his, his, right. his smarts, um, throughout his career, um, you know, until probably the late 50s. Oh. So for a good decade, 
he heard how ugly he was, and the names that they used, and his teammates, endearingly, but it still hurt. So much so that the beginning of his, uh, he wrote an autobiography with Ed Fitzgerald, who was a really fine writer for sport and Sports Illustrated, ended up going to Doubleday and being the executive editor. And, and he wrote, he co-authored Yogi's first autobiography in the very beginning of the very first paragraph is, um, there are two, sometimes I think there are two Yogi bears. One's a family man, a successful player, successful entrepreneur, lives in North Jersey, that's the guy I know. The other guy is a cross between Joe Palooka and Little Abner, who's funnier than Jackie Gleason and Bob Hope combined, who's, who's too dumb to read anything but comic books, and, and ha doesn't have a nerve in his body because he's not smart enough to understand pressure, and that's why he comes through in the clutch. I don't know who that yogi is. He wrote that in 1960. Right? I mean, so he's 35, he's 35 years old, 13-year career, all but one as an all-star, and he, he, excuse me, all of them uh, all-star. It, it supposedly rolled off his back, but it didn't. And he, uh, I mean, they wrote about other players like that as well, but not like Yogi. Yogi was the capital of Mach. And the, the fact that he, the transition from that to national to to, na to icon to national treasure right. is an unbelievable journey um, that that he took, and it's been interesting to watch how he's how he handled that. So when he's in the national treasure phase of his life, and there's you know I think I read this somewhere where Barack Obama, who was president at the time, asked for the famous him to sign a famous photograph of the Jackie Robinson mm -hmm. stealing home. And right. is it true that he wrote he was safe yes. on the photograph? Yeah, oh, and I mean, that was... Oh, he was out, he was out, not safe. Right, he was, he was, he was out. out. Yogi had a thing, and, and Al Kaline told me this, and that's certainly the, the most famous uh, example of Yogi, when he thinks about one person, that's what he thinks about. There was a play in 1961, most people think that the Yankees ran away with the pen in 1961 because of the home run race and everything right. else. Um, in, on, on Labor Day, the Tigers come in, and if they sweep a three-game series... They're in first place. Uh, they had an excellent team, and they would have won. K-Line, um, uh, it's nothing-nothing in the first game, and K-Line hits a ball down the left field line, and it's double. And K-Line was a fast, exceptionally talented player. And, and he's rounding first, and he's in second, and he slides into second, and the guy has the ball. And he goes, there's no way that y and Yogi's playing left field. How did he know where it was going to hit on the wall, and how did he peg me it out, and he's out? For the rest of the time that they knew each other, that happened 1961 until his death in 2015 when he started K-Line at the Hall of Fame. Remember when I threw you out at the <laughs> second base every single time? And and other people have told me the same stories. But you know, obviously that was a very famous story. I've seen the the uh, the replay endlessly. The umpire was clearly out of position to see the steal of home. The steal of home. Jackie Robinson's steal of home. Um, the 1955 World Series was the only time the Dodgers beat the Yankees in the six times, I think, that they played them uh, before they, they moved out west. And um, Summers is out, uh, out of position. And you can see, because the camera isn't, Yogi's got the glove down. I mean, he's got the glove <laughs> down, and Jackie slides right into his mitt. And so, and, you know, they love each other, by the way. I mean, the two of them were great friends. Um, there's an unbelievable, in 1956 when they won in seven, uh, I was watching a film yesterday about him, um, Jackie Robbins comes into the clubhouse to congratulate Yogi. After his last game? Yeah, after the last game. I mean, after Robbins' last game ever, because um, he didn't play after that. Right, he didn't play after that. And he can, comes over and he, and he just goes, I don't know why I'm laughing, 
because you know if it wasn't for this guy, we would have won. And they were they had his arm around Yogi, which is un, you know in a crowded locker room uh, with people mocked lights and never and 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 he's just telling the world uh, how how great of a of a hitter, a player, and a guy Yogi is. It was just a really touching moment. Well, it's good to talk about Yogi Berra on a day like this. It is, <laughs> isn't it? Is By the way, he was. Donald Trump and he were friends. But sure, but that's... Yeah. Yogi was friends with everybody. Right, and Trump also Donald Trump was the president at the time. You know, right. I mean, but perhaps the moral of the story is it ain't over till it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and he was also very good friends with uh, Richard Nixon, yes. who came to Yankee Stadium, lived in North Jersey. Yogi was a, a big North Jersey guy. I mean, he looked at himself in the mirror. He saw Yankee first, New Jersey second. And uh, so... Nixon lived there, so he, him and Nixon sat at games together and talked about baseball. So I want to, just before we wrap up, give you guys a chance to ask each other questions before we, uh, we finish. Craig, do you have any baseball-related questions for John, or non-baseball-related questions? Sure. I mean, I, I think the other question, just to come back to what I mentioned before, is you talked about how the press and its relation to the players has changed. How have the players and their relation to society? Wow. Um, I think players actually... Think, no, I guess I can't say. That. I mean, they're 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 so different, and their their economic strata is so different. And I think the way we look at at I mean, look, we're a celebrity-driven culture. Witness, we have a reality show TV star as our as our next president, as our current president. Yeah, as, excuse me, as our current president. Okay, I got to take a breath on that. Um, and uh, so I I don't to tell you the truth, um, I think. Americans want athletes to be role models, but realize that they're not. I think, and I think athletes try to be role models, but they really don't. And except because it, it, it's a, they're a brand, and they make more money if they're actually looked at as at least good people, if not role models. Um, uh, the back in the day, we had people. I mean, most baseball were guys. I mean, Yogi finished eighth grade. Um, there were a lot of guys who, Ralph Terry grew up uh, in, in a shack in, in Oklahoma with a dirt floor. Um, these guys were, were basically came from, you know, um, lower middle class America, if not lower class America, and, you know, just thought that they just, this was the greatest uh, thing that ever happened to them, and they were so thankful for what they had. Um, and now... And I think this is true about the country. I mean, I think one of the reasons I've stayed in sports so long is because I think it's such a reflection of society. And it also now is a vehicle to be able to write what I want to write because people do follow sports, unfortunately, more than they follow politics. I mean, I think people know the backup second baseman in New York more than they know who their congressman is. And so it gives me an opportunity, you know, to, to write these things. I think they did take... Um, the, uh, it seriously to be role models. And I think the teams um, also... Uh, did because I think, I mean, I know they got fined for, like the Copa uh, yeah. incident where there was a fight at a, at a nightclub, the Copa about a nightclub, a big one in, in 1956, and uh, they were all fined. Um, and I'm not so sure that happens um, uh, now. Uh, and and it was a big surprise that a guy, that a guy like Mickey Mantle or Moose Garin or or Hank Bauer would get Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford, yes, but th not right. those other guys. I, and uh, whereas now, I don't know that anybody is surprised if, if people get into trouble um, in sports. It's like it comes with the territory. 
you, you asked my question at the beginning, which is just consuming, is, okay, so where does this end? Uh, and how quickly it is, and I think you exhausted most of the questions that I have, because like every American right now, I'm wondering where you know what the future holds, uh, where the you know where the, the tipping points could be on, on how things change, um, and you as a, just a someone who studies this, remember an era can point to another era where there is this much uncertainty about the man that and uh, the man who's is in the White House. It would be difficult to find another. The examples that come to mind would be Warren Harding for the Teapot Dome, um, the massive scandal that, however, led to a succession by another Republican, um, or you know perhaps the uncertainties about Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. But he was seen as a reassuring figure right. rather than a frightening one. Um, you know, I do think that this is an unprecedented phenomenon. Um, you know, I, I would leave the last word with Yogi Berra. So it ain't over till it's over. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Thank you, it's Craig. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Craig and John. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know it helped me make it through Inauguration Day. Again, for more from John, follow him on Twitter at John Pessa. Craig is at charneyresearch.com. And I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. I'm on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell.